We have a really special treat today. Uh, my friend Davis Mooney, a pastor from, uh, in, who's in Winston-Salem right now at Hope Church, is going to um, preach to us. I just wanted to introduce him. Um, Davis and I met as interns for college campus ministry, like, I don't know how long, maybe 10 years ago. Yeah. Like that. Um, uh, RUF. Uh, and Davis had gone to NC State, so we weren't that good of friends, you know, initially. Um, but we worked through it. Okay. Um, and, uh, and then we went to seminary together at Covenant, where we were in a uh, preaching lab together, um, and also just a lot of classes. And so Davis and I learned to preach uh, together, which is pretty cool. Um, and then uh, we are p- a part of a pastor's group now that meets once every other week uh, over Zoom and goes on a retreat once a year, and our wives go on retreats together, which they did a, a few weeks ago. So um, Davis is a great friend. I'm excited to hear um, him uh, deliver God's word to us. So thanks for being here, brother. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Harrison. Um, Harrison did much better in that preaching lab than I did. So um, just wanted to, to get that out there. But on the way in, one of the greeters saw me and said, man, you look just like Harrison's brother. Um, and we are not related as far as I know, but I do consider Harrison a brother um, just through all the experiences that we've had together. And so uh, we're so thankful for Jordan and Harrison and their family and love being just 30 minutes from them. Um, so we're really thankful. And it is, it's an honor to be here uh, with you this morning and uh, to continue your series in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts describes the expansion of the church uh, at Jesus' kingdom of shalom, I hear, is kind of a, a theme for y'all uh, this, this year. And so his, his, his expansion of his kingdom of shalom, which is peace and goodness, And one of the major themes of Acts is that that expansion goes forth unhindered, despite barriers from within the church and barriers outside the church. And we'll certainly see that in this passage today as Jesus' kingdom of Shalom, his church, expands in Philippi. So to give a little bit of context, last week Harrison preached about what is often called the Jerusalem Council, and all of the beautiful things that we see about salvation in that passage. I saw that he even maybe ate a donut during that sermon, which was pretty special. I'm not going to eat any donuts, I'm sorry. Uh, But then, so Paul and his companions, they leave Jerusalem, and they travel around to some of the churches where they've already preached the gospel to encourage them. And then Paul and his companions, they want to go into Asia, but kind of strangely, the Holy Spirit... uh, stops them from doing that and says, no, actually, I want you to go into Macedonia and to start heading into Europe. So that's what they do. They head to Philippi. And Luke tells us in this passage that Philippi was a a leading city in Macedonia and a Roman colony. So the city was founded by Philip, who is Alexander the Great's father. And then as the Roman Empire expanded, Philippi became an important city in that expansion. It's specifically called a colony, which means that it was largely populated by Roman citizens, and there are historical accounts that show that many of the the citizens of Philippi were actually retired uh, Roman soldiers, so they were Roman veterans. So Paul and Silas, and now Luke and Timothy, they come to Philippi, and they encounter barriers, and they witness, and they see people believe in Jesus. It's amazing. And they see this as they interact with three very different people, which is convenient for a three-point sermon. 
So we're going to have a look at each of these three people, a businesswoman, a slave girl, and a jailer. And we're going we're to see the, the barriers that are overcome as Jesus' kingdom of shalom expands in their lives and in the city of Philippi. And it may be that you're here this morning and you're asking the key question in this passage, which we see in verse 30. What must I do to be saved? And if that's true for you, we are so glad that you're here. You may identify, I think all of us can identify with one of the people in this passage. And I hope that like them, you'll see and believe in Jesus' kingdom of shalom and peace as we walk through this passage. Or it may be that you're here and, and you've been saved, but you're not maybe quite sure how the Lord might overcome barriers as you try to love other people and point them to Jesus' kingdom. And I hope that you'll see and be encouraged by Jesus' work in this passage. So let's dive in. First, we see Lydia. We, we learn some really interesting things about her and the barriers that are overcome as she's welcomed into Jesus' kingdom and his church. First, Lydia is a woman in a very male-dominated society. I love the fact that right after the Jerusalem uh, council, the, the, the first Gentile or non-Jewish person who is converted, who believes in Jesus, is a woman. I love that. And also, we learn that she's probably pretty wealthy. She's a seller of purple goods, and purple dye was particularly difficult to, and expensive to make. So this was a, a pretty lucrative business for Lydia. We at least know that her house was large enough to host four missionaries alongside of her family. So she had, she had some means, right? And so we also know that she's a worshiper of God. Even though she's a Gentile, she's not Jewish, she's at least familiar with the, the Jewish religion and, and worships God. So what are the barriers to overcome here? Well, a big one is the lack of a synagogue. Usually when Paul and his companions would come to a new city, they would go to the synagogue on the Sabbath and they would start preaching there. That's what they did in Salamis and Antioch and a few other places. But Philippi doesn't have a synagogue. And usually in a city, you have to have at least 10 Jewish men in order to have a synagogue in that city. So there, there aren't 10 Jewish men in Philippi. Instead, there's this group of women who are coming down to the river to pray and to worship God there. And that barrier of the lack of a synagogue is overcome as Paul and his companions go down to the river and they meet these women and they start preaching the gospel. Another possible barrier, it possibly, could be Lydia's wealth. We know that she's a, a, a businesswoman, a successful, capable businesswoman in a lucrative business uh, with lots of means, which is a good and beautiful thing. But like so many competent and capable, successful people, it might have been tempting for Lydia to, to place her faith in her own competency or in her own successful business. And maybe to think, you know, I've got everything I need, right? My things are going well. My business is making money. I'm comfortable. Sure, I might mess up and make a mistake every once in a while, but do I really need to be saved? She could have been like the rich young ruler in Mark 10, 
who comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's asking what he must do to be saved. And he, he tells Jesus all of these great things that he's doing, but Jesus knows his heart. He knows that he's placing his faith in his wealth rather than in Jesus. And so Jesus challenges him and says, go and sell all of your possessions. And it says the rich young ruler went away sorrowful. And then Jesus says those famous verses, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then the disciples kind of throw up their hands and they say, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. All things are possible with God. Look at how Paul and Silas witness to Lydia. They just sit down and they begin speaking. And we don't know exactly what they said, but I'm sure that they told these women about Jesus and his grace and mercy and about his kingdom of peace and truth. And Lord opened her heart to receive what Paul and Silas said to her. And she believes. And she's baptized in all of her household as well. How beautiful is that? Who knows how long she's been coming down to this river to pray, week after week, Sabbath after Sabbath. And things seem to be going well for her and her business, and she's worshiping God, and that's so good, and that's so beautiful. She's so close, but there's just one piece missing, the truth of Jesus. She hasn't heard the good news that she can be saved by grace, through faith alone. And here comes Paul. And the Lord works in her life and opens her heart, and she's saved. This strong, capable businesswoman has been welcomed into Jesus' kingdom. This reminded me of the foreword of uh, Tim Keller's great book. It's called Every Good Endeavor, Connecting Your Work to God's Work. The foreword is by Catherine Leary Aldorf, who also contributed to the book. And she shares part of her story, how she was a successful businesswoman in Manhattan in 1989, and one of her colleagues invited her to this new church in Manhattan called Redeemer. And here's what she writes. I had been thoroughly inoculated against church years before, having determined that the religion of my father's church was more form than substance, substance, and that any leanings I might have had in, in that direction were easily overcome by enlightened thinking. But Redeemer caught my attention in a few ways. The pastor was intelligent and talked like a normal person. That's helpful. He seemed to take the Bible seriously, and he tried to apply it to, to parts of life that were important to me, like my work. And as she attended Redeemer, the Lord opened her heart, and she became a believer. And she was afraid that this might mean that she would have to leave her high-powered job. But instead, as she kept going to Redeemer, she found that she actually became more excited about her job and how she could cultivate and spread God's kingdom of shalom, of peace and truth, even in the skyscrapers of Manhattan. It's beautiful. So, you may be here, and it, it may kind of feel like things are going well, at, you know, in work or in, at school. Things feel stable. You feel confident. You feel capable. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's a, that's a blessing from the Lord. But 
it may be that deep down you're a little bit like the, the rich young ruler. You've got a lot and you're still wondering, what must I do with all of my competency and gifts and capability to inherit eternal life? Or like Lydia, you may have all of that and be coming down to the river, showing up Sunday after Sunday, and it just hasn't clicked yet. It feels like something is still missing. God draws his people to himself, and he opens our hearts to believe in him. He can and will open your heart. And then, like Lydia, he, he, he could call us to use the gifts and the competency that he's given us to his glory. It's beautiful. Or you may be here and your, your workplace or your home or your school is in desperate need of shalom. And I know how hard that is. I've been in situations like that. But friends, you can continue to show up and, and serve as God calls you to and use the gifts that, that he has given you uh, for the good of those around you and to his glory. To cultivate shalom in the communities around you. God can and does overcome barriers as his kingdom expands, and he, he graciously invites his people to join in that work. So we've seen Lydia, the businesswoman, and now we see someone on the opposite end of the socioeconomic spectrum, a demon-possessed slave girl. She's very anonymous in this passage. We don't know her name, and we don't know where she's from, unlike Lydia. But I kind of think that's the point. God can, the Lord can even work in the life of an anonymous, overlooked, demon-possessed slave girl as he expands his kingdom of shalom. And this girl desperately needs peace. Now, we may be a little uncomfortable with the idea of demon possession uh, because thankfully it's not something that we encounter regularly. We, We don't encounter it often today. But the Bible is clear that the spiritual realm is a reality and that there are spirits at work that can and do affect people's lives. You can ask Harrison more about that sometime. <laughs> but, but demon possession was at least somewhat common in the time of Jesus and the apostles. We read in the Gospels that Jesus healed multiple demon-possessed people. And this girl is under the tight grip of an evil spirit. And whether or not she could actually tell the future or just kind of seem like she could tell the future, we're not sure, but people would come and pay money to hear from this spirit through this girl. And of course, her owners found that they could make a lot of money off of her. So not only is she under the tight grip of an evil spirit, she's also under the tight grip of her her owners. As long as she was making money for them, they were never going to let her go. So this girl is basically defined by the barriers that seem to inhibit her from entering Jesus' kingdom of shalom, which is what she desperately needed. But look at how she herself is the witness to the way of salvation. She follows Paul and his companions around for many days, yelling, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. Even the evil spirit knows the truth. This overlooked, anonymous slave girl knows the truth. She just hasn't been freed to walk in it yet. And look at what Paul does. After days of this, he's been patient because I think he knows what would happen if he turned around and did what he's about to do. 
She's been following him around, distracting him, interrupting him, and finally Paul has had enough. And look how simple it is. He turns around and he commands the Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ to leave her, and it does. And Jesus frees this girl from this Spirit. And it's not made explicit, but because of the flow of the passage and how Jesus' kingdom is growing in this passage, it's clear that he, he frees her to believe what she's been saying. That Paul and his companions, they proclaim the way of salvation. And now, because of Jesus, she's freed to walk in that salvation. She's welcomed into the new and growing church in Philippi and Jesus' kingdom. A poor overlooked slave girl is welcomed in. Andy Crouch, uh, who's a journalist, I think he lives over in Chapel Hill, pretty close, but he he tells a great story in his book, uh, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. He had traveled to India to learn more about the work of World Vision in that country. Uh, World Vision's mission statement says that it's an international partnership of Christians whose mission is to follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and working with the poor and oppressed to promote human transformation, seek justice, and bear witness to the good news of the kingdom of God. So when Andy got there to India, he wanted to interview Jaya Kumar, who is the head of World Vision in India. But instead, Jai Kumar brings him on a train with multiple other employees of World Vision, and he takes them out to the region of Gudiyatham, where they had been working to fight poverty and to end forced labor for children there. And Andy was astounded at what he saw. He got to meet over 50 boys and girls who had been freed from deplorable working conditions. And he talked to one 10-year-old girl who uh, proudly declared that she was going to become a doctor and then she was going to come back to her village and treat patients there while also freeing other children from forced labor. Here's what Andy writes. Then she handed me a coconut, its top freshly lopped off to give access to the cool, sweet water inside. She was the host, I was the guest. She was the expert, I was the student. She was, in the time-honored tradition of hospitality, honored in the act of honoring her visitor. I can still taste that coconut water, the sweet and fragrant taste of shalom. Shalom is freedom. Jesus' kingdom can and does include everyone from a rich, successful businessman or woman to a poor, overlooked slave girl. This girl was the lowest of low in her society. But she is freed by the Most High God to walk in the way of salvation, welcomed into his kingdom. Jesus loves her and frees her and blesses her with shalom, his peace. No longer does she belong to the evil spirit. No longer does she belong to these owners of hers. Now she belongs to Jesus, who loves her and welcomes her. Do we feel overlooked? And are we wondering how to experience shalom. Do you sometimes feel small, overlooked, unseen? Friends, Jesus sees you. His peace, his kingdom is real, and he wants to welcome you into it. Or maybe like many of us, you have experienced that freedom, that peace, that shalom in Jesus, and that's so good and so beautiful. And now Jesus invites us to cultivate shalom in the lives of others. 
We may not be like Paul and go around exercising demons. Again, it's worth having a conversation with Harrison if, if you are. But are we seeking shalom for those who are often overlooked? This could look a, a million different ways. It could simply be seeing someone who is often overlooked and loving them and being hospitable to them, grabbing coffee with them at some point or lunch. It could be entering your work or your home or your school tomorrow and seeking shalom there, being a kind and caring coworker, seeking justice and peace in the workplace. Jesus brings shalom to the overlooked, and he loves to use his people as he does that. So finally, we see the, the jailer. He receives the prisoners, and he hears the report of what's happened. The owners of the slave girl come to the magistrates, and they want Paul and Silas locked up. We know it's, be, it, it's because they're mad that a major source of their income has dried up. But, but look at how they frame it. They say, these men are Jews, and they're disturbing the city. They're advocating customs that, are, that aren't lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. These Jews are stirring things up for us Romans. It's a classic us versus them. And like fear-mongering so often does, unfortunately, it works. Paul and Silas are beaten and thrown into jail. And because he was a jailer in a Roman colony in a city that was inhabited by many veterans, we can almost be sure that this Roman jailer was a, a Roman veteran himself. He had a, a pretty good job. He was in charge of the jail. But he's not a ruler or a magistrate. And so this guy was most likely pretty firmly middle class. Not a wealthy, successful businesswoman like Lydia, but a full Roman citizen, unlike the slave girl. And we also learn that he lives by a strict code of conduct, which is pretty unsurprising for a former Roman soldier. So once again, we see the Lord break barriers, literally. There's a great earthquake, and the doors of the prison open, and everyone's chains fall off. And normally, this would be a free-for-all, right? A literal jailbreak with prisoners flying all over the place. But Paul and Silas have, have clearly made an impression on the other prisoners. It's midnight, and they can't sleep because they're bound, and they're still bleeding from the beating that they, re they received. But they're worshiping instead of complaining. It's shalom in a prison. And so, of course, the other prisoners would have been, what's going on here? Who are these guys? So when the doors open and the chains fall off, the, the jailer assumes that everyone is gone, that they've all fled. And, and this Roman jailer, like many other jailers, would have, he knew that he guarded these prisoners with his life. If one of them went missing, he knew that he might have to pay for it with his life. And so when this guy thinks that everyone is gone, he decides that it would be more honorable to take his own life than to be killed by the magistrates. He's living in this code of conduct of his, and he's seeing it fail. But Paul and Silas are still there, and they cry out, and they let him know that they are there. They say, stop. And the Lord has brought this man to a crisis point. His sword is literally drawn, but Paul and Silas save his life. He realizes how inadequate his, his code of conduct, his code of honor is, and he asks them that key question 
What must I do to be saved? And look how, how beautiful their answer is. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. What must I do? No, believe. And he does. He believes. And he takes them out and he washes their wounds. And then maybe even using the same bowl, he is baptized along with his family. So this middle-class Roman jailer is brought to a crisis point, And then he's graciously welcomed into Jesus' kingdom of Shalom. And he responds with rejoicing and hospitality, spreading that shalom to his prisoners. I wonder if Victor Hugo uh, had this Roman jailer in mind when he wrote his famous novel, Les Miserables. It tells the the story of the poor thief Jean Valjean, who's just been released from prison, but then he steals again and has to run from the police. And he comes up with an alias and ends up becoming a wealthy factory owner. But the cold, calculating prison guard, who has now become a police inspector, his name is Javert, he suspects that this rich man is actually Jean Valjean and should go back to prison. So as the story unfolds, Javert finally learns that it is, in fact, Jean Valjean. But in an amazing turn of events, Valjean actually has the opportunity to kill Javert, but he doesn't take it. Instead, he gives him mercy and he releases him. But Javert can't, he can't handle this. All his life, he's lived by a strict code of conduct. And he can't imagine being in debt to a thief and a convict. And so in the Broadway play, which is so good, here's how Javert tries to, to work through his dilemma. He says, I am the law, and the law is not mocked. I'll spit his pity right back in his face. There's nothing on earth that we share. It's either Valjean or Javert. And sadly, Javert can't receive this scandalous grace from Valjean, and he does what the Roman jailer was about to do. He takes his own life. Friends, Jesus' grace, his beauty, his peace is scandalous. It brings us to a beautiful crisis point. We can either continue to try to live up to the standard that we could never live up to. We could continue to try to, to do it on our own, to save ourselves on our own. But that just leads to death. Or we can receive his incredible grace and mercy. This middle-class, upright Roman jailer receives Jesus' grace and mercy through Paul and Silas. He experiences shalom, and then he rejoices and he spreads that shalom, that peace, to those around him. Many of us ask the same question that the jailer asked. What must I do to be saved? Do, do, do. What must I do? But we can't do. We're simply called to believe. To believe in the one who did it all, who lived up to the standard that we could never live up to. The one who was perfectly sinless, yet sacrificed for us on the cross. We can't satisfy justice on our own. In fact, justice says that we should die. But Jesus died in our place. And now we're called to respond in faith as he opens our hearts to believe, to rely upon Jesus. And as he brings us to faith in him, he welcomes us into his kingdom of shalom. 
So as we conclude, we've, we've seen Jesus' church, his, his kingdom, expand in Philippi as it goes into Europe as a rich businesswoman, an overlooked slave girl, and a middle-class jailer are welcomed into his church. Can you imagine what that next Sunday looked like as the, the church meets in Lydia's house and there's Lydia and her family and this former slave girl and the Roman jailer and his family? It's so beautiful. Socioeconomic barriers, spiritual barriers, literal physical barriers have been overcome as three people come to faith in Jesus. Friends, we can believe in Jesus. He is the way of salvation. He welcomes the rich into his kingdom because he is rich in mercy. He cares for the poor and overlooked because he became poor and overlooked to save us. He looses chains and opens doors in order to save those who are just trying to show up and do their jobs day to day. But he gives us so much more life than we can imagine. Jesus is at work. And as he expands his kingdom, he graciously calls us, his people, to join in that work to cultivate his kingdom, his shalom on earth, to open our doors in hospitality, to see and care for the overlooked, to wash the wounds of the hurting, to be a faithful, faithful co-worker or parent or friend in the places that he calls us. He invites us into his kingdom-building work, and he continues to overcome barriers as his kingdom advances in and through us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful passage as we, we get to see your kingdom expand in Philippi as you uh, do incredible things in the life of Lydia, uh, a successful businesswoman, in the life of this overlooked slave girl who you see and free, and in the life of this Roman jailer, jailer who you bring to a crisis point and graciously save him, Lord. Father, we thank you that you do all of that in our lives as well. You see us, you free us, you bless us with the riches of your mercy, and you uh, bring us to the, that crisis point of, of faith, of showing us that we can't do it on our own, that you have done all for us, Lord. Would you help us to walk in that even this week? And Lord, would you help us to respond as we see those in this passage responding by looking around and, and getting involved in the, the kingdom work that you're doing around us, of spreading shalom to those around us. Lord, would you show us clearly ways that we can respond uh, in thankfulness to what you've, do, what you've done in our lives even this week? Father, we praise you and thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.